You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Well, good afternoon, good evening. It's uh, great to be back in the book of Colossians with you. We've had such an amazing time uh, walking through this book this year and then just to have the little bit of disruption that I feel like God definitely gave us a few weeks where he just wanted to speak to us and encourage our hearts. Um, those days, uh, I, my, my hope, are behind us uh, and we get to get back into uh, the, the book of Colossians. Just want to remind you that if you've been following along and you've been with Arise, you've got your scripture journal. Today we're going to jump into Colossians chapter 3. And uh, the hope is that you would have uh, still a blank page for yourself. Uh, We'll begin on page number 17. So you'll have an opportunity to take notes as we walk through that. Just want to encourage you to do that. I'm going to pray just before we start and ask for God's help. And then from there, uh, by God's grace, uh, we'll dive in. Father, I ask you this evening that you would give us your grace. Lord, we know that the the word of God transforms us. It changes us. And it, um, it is a tool, God, that you use to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ Our text today reminds us that our new mindset is one that ought to be looking in heaven's direction and seeking after being renewed after our creator. So would you do that even now? God, I pray that you would help me to communicate even a better sermon, Lord, than I have prepared to preach a better sermon than I have written down uh, for the edification of all of your people at Arise and anyone else who may be edified by this. And so, God, I ask for your grace and uh, that I might decrease and, Lord Jesus, you increase. Holy Spirit, go before us, teach us, convict us, and again, change us, and we'll give all the glory to you, God. Amen. I just, uh, as I invite you to turn back to Colossians with me and to get into Colossians chapter 3, I thought it'd be good for us to have a little bit of a refresher It'd be good for us to remember where we've come from thus far. We've talked in Colossians chapter 1 and in Colossians chapter 2 really a lot about the high Christology of Jesus Christ. We've talked about some deep theology and things that should just make our heads explode when we think about who Jesus is and how everything else is in subjection to him. Everything pales in comparison to him. And it's an interesting thing that as we find ourselves now in Colossians 3, the heading in our Bible says, put on the new self. There's an old self that we are to be putting off. There are old ways that we are to uh, be putting aside and laying aside. And then there's a new self. There's a new humanity even, as we'll talk about today, uh, that God wants the world to see. I think in these days, it does not go without saying that the world needs and wants to see a church with authentic faith. The world's not looking for religious Christianity. The world's looking for real Christians. 
And this text that God has us in in Colossians chapter 3 literally puts us in place where we can see that or be reminded that the very thing Jesus said will show off our genuineness and our authenticity to a watching world is the very thing that he calls us to in Colossians chapter 3, namely oneness, love, and unity. The world's attempts at establishing things like love and, and unity and even a oneness, it always falls short. There's, there's tolerance and there is, uh, you know, putting on the same jersey and all going to a game, but then later on taking it off and we go our separate ways. Some of the, the, the worst fights I've ever seen were between two Raider fans or two Dodger fans at the stadium. Because the reality is, is that there's nothing the world can offer us that brings us together like the gospel does But on the flip side, the gospel itself, it drives us deep into fellowship with God and with one another. The gospel produces a Christian unity, Christian unity that uh, is far greater than the superficial tolerance and and, uh, uh, the superficial selfish goals that the world puts forth. And that's what we're going to look at when we see our text today. In fact, we're going to look at two overarching realities that guide our unity. We're going to see the two things that Paul has been putting on display since the beginning of the book of Colossians all the way up until now. And he's going to show us that this, these two things are our guide. The only two things we've got to remember, the only two things that we should be focused on are these two things. Let's read the scripture together and then I'll continue to give us a little bit of background. We're going to be in Colossians 3, verses 9 to 11, but I'll fill in the blank for us at the top of the chapter. Verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. You know, this section of scripture is one of my favorite. This has shaped me over the last decade. Uh, This has been a scripture that has been etched on my heart and something that I've taken to heart to try and live out. And so to find ourselves here, I'm excited about it, but I want to make sure I link it together the way that Paul did so that it doesn't escape any of us. This section links together chapter 3, verses 5 to 9 with uh, verses 12 to 17. It links together this instruction about our old humanity that we should put off and about our new humanity and our new life, things that we are to put on in Christ. It's like a bridge. It's a bridge. It bridges the gap of the old self and the new self. And here's the thing. This is a gap that Christians Any person, period, but especially Christians need to know you could never overcome the gap between your old self and the new self with anything other than the two things that Paul puts to pen in this letter. There's nothing else that will overcome our sin and make us more like Jesus than the fact that he's made us new creatures and a new humanity. 
You know, speaking of the old self, Paul lists things like sexual immorality and impurity, lust, passion, covetousness. He even goes on and he talks about lying. And uh, he talks about things like obscene talk. He calls these things earthly. That's why it could be referred to as sins of the flesh, sins of the natural fallen flesh. And they're, they're inconsistent. They don't match up with our new spiritual self. And so what Paul literally says is these things have got to go. They don't mark you. These are not the kinds of things that people should know or, or see when they come to know you. Jesus said that the world's going to know you by your love and by your love for one another. He never, never said he's going to know you for your lying, that your neighbor would come to saving faith because of how immoral or impure you could be. I think we all know that that is inconsistent with what it means to be in the body of Christ. True or not true? I'm glad to hear you, uh, at least in my own hearing. He says that people who've been born again, basically, you're not to be those who walk around like the walking dead. You're, just, you're supposed to be those who give off a fragrant aroma of Christ, not the, a person who, who still stinks like the dead. And so when he lists all those things out and he says uh, that you, you need to put them away, you once walked in them, you once lived in them, you were an idolater, you were... Uh, into all kinds of evil desires, but now, now your life's different. That's why he says in verse number six that these things we put away because the wrath of God is literally coming on the world on account of them. That's a sobering reality when we look around the world the world that we live in and things that we experience and we definitely can say that we live in a fallen and a very much decaying world. And the Bible tells us that that's because sin has entered the world through a natural man and we still have a war within us and even without us and between us uh, that can at times look like that. And so Paul is just basically pointing to Jesus, pointing to the gospel. He would point to nothing else. In verse number 10, he says, we have put on the new self. If you read it again with me, we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He's saying that we are in the process of being changed and being made new. And that is in the knowledge of the Christ whom we've studied, the Christ who we've come to know, the Jesus who we say it is absolutely all about, the one that puts to shame religion and every other person and, and, and everybody who would call themselves to be uh, a sage or whatever. The truth of the matter is, is that we're being made like the God of the universe who became a man. And so we put off our old man. We put off our old habits of immorality, of impurity, of passion, evil desire, and greed. We lay aside things like anger and slander and abusive speech from our mouths, and we don't lie to one another. Why? Because we have a new life and we are called to a new quality of life. We have positionally a new life. We have been born again. Do we walk in the resurrection power and in the new life is the question that we must answer and what Paul is calling to as we're being called to be Christ-like. Before I jump back into just 
right where we will be in those two verses. I want to remind us of one thing that I think is very clear uh, or, or very important for us and that this is both individual and it is corporate. It's not only written for an individual to tell somebody you should not lie or you need to stop slandering uh, or, or your obscene speech has to go. Paul intentionally yokes together personal sins of the heart with, uh, you know, things like idolatry, right? The, uh, he, he, he links it with interpersonal sins, like lying to one another. He, he, he links it with things that foster disunity and dissension in our text. And he says our new life in Christ is corporate, right? And it has these implications for how we live, not just as individuals, but together. How often do we say that you can't even do the Christian life alone? There are no lone rangers in the body of Christ. One of the things that we're very careful to say and to remember at Arise is, and as a local church is that we need one another, we grow with one another, and we belong to one another. There's no isolation, right? There's no text of scripture in the Old Testament or the New Testament that will say the people of God are a fractured, individualistic people, but no, we are together. It's just like being on a road trip, and we all in the car packed up in a van, and we're going to wherever, you might be a driver, you might be in the passenger seat, there might be another person in the back with the map, there's even a person taking a nap because he will drive later. It don't matter who you are, we're all in this thing together. Need one another. And if you wanted to get out of the car halfway between here and Osawatomie, Kansas, good luck to you. How else are you going to get there? We journey to the kingdom together. So that's the point, that's the context, that's what Paul is saying, even when he talks about the sins of the flesh. And then it's from this understanding that Paul brings us to verse number 11 to show us that the church needs to collectively put off some of the old self. And collectively put off some of the old barriers that separate people. And here it is, here's our main thought, racism, ethnocentrism, classism. Monoculturalism, uh, culturalism, and even sexism, they have no place in the body of Christ. They have no place in the body of Christ because God has united us all together as one in him. That's the point. And that's what I hope we can dive into. And before we get to those two realities that dictate our unity, let's just look at the distinctions that tend to divide us. They're right here in our text. Join me back in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew is the first thing he said. This is pretty easily understood to anyone who is a Bible student or heard anything about the people of God and the church. You realize that the Jews and the Greeks, they just absolutely did not get along. This is actually one of the things that got Jesus in trouble. You know, he'd go and he's trying to help somebody and a woman's telling him, your kind and my kind, we don't drink from the same vessels. What are you doing? Because she's a Samaritan and he is a Jew. Ethnicity and, and what is otherwise known sometimes as race in the Bible, Jews and Greeks, as, as that touched them, they did not associate, let alone even relate to one another. 
And though the principle is for both quote unquote sides, right? It's for the Jew and it's for the Greek. The truth of the matter is, is that what Paul is laser focused on uh, acknowledging here is more about upmanship and partiality that tries to squash other people down. This this angle of partiality that says, I am here and everyone else or or someone else is down here at the low. I I am a person of of great worth and everyone else is, uh, is just blah. That's the Jew's attitude toward the Greek. And Paul wants to remove all the barriers that would cause a person to look down on another person. I rhetorically said that none of us would ever say that it is consistent with Christian character to be a liar, an adulterer, or an immoral individual. Do we realize that in the one and the same way, I mean, when this gets to a crescendo, literally it comes to a head and he says here in the church, the new covenant people of God, the new humanity, there is absolutely no Jew and no Greek. What he's not saying is that those distinctions disappear somehow and we got to become colorblind. No, what he's saying is those things do not matter in terms of how you can be made right with God and whether or not you have a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. The male Jews would have considered this something that was so hard of a pill to swallow because they always saw themselves so much better. The male Jew is better than the female Jew, and, he, and, and he's definitely better than the Jews, I mean, than, than the Greeks and the Gentiles. He's better than everybody. Part of his daily prayers included this statement, blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. The Jews had attitudes especially male Jews, that put themselves in in their eyes in a place to where they ought to be praised above others. And Paul says, here, none of that. Not in the church. They have been born with some supposed elite privilege. And he says, you got to let that go. Any power you have, any privilege you have, any placement that you have in, in society based on maybe even your family background, that doesn't matter here. It's something that you surrender to the Lord Jesus uh, for others. As a level said, I just want us to hear this from our own individual seats of superiority. It's not directed at one person. I mean, it's directed at the Jews, but this is God's word to us today. And we know that we have fewer people who are ethnically Jewish in our community, even though we have them. But the truth of the matter is that this is for every single person. So here's the thing. It's an admonishment not to just view yourself as equal to others, but to go further than that. More importantly, this this is an admonishment to view others as sharing an equal standing with God alongside you. And that you should even be more concerned about theirs in terms of growth and health in ways that would express itself self-sacrificially than you are about preserving your own place. It can sound the same, but the attitude can be distinctly different between a person who sees himself as valuable versus an individual who sees everyone else as as valuable or more than I am. Those are worlds apart. You'll recall that Paul, he had wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. And one of the things that he wrote in that um, letter In verse 14 and 15 is for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
He goes on and he says he did that by abolishing the laws and commandments, etc. And then he goes into verse 16 and he says, or right before 16, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. In that verse from Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has in mind real accounts, things that he has really experienced, uh, you know, situations that he has had to uh, come in and try to solve. He, he's, he's been in the middle of all this. He has seen these literal dividing walls. Yes, a Jew would pray the way that I've prayed, but they would go into a temple where there's an inscription outside that literally pushes anybody who's not a male Jew outside. That, that, that if you were some t- somehow a, a proselyte, but you were, you were ethnically Gentile, you could come close, but you couldn't come inside the temple. You must stay out there. And there's even a wall beyond that where, where just a general old uh, dirty Gentile or, or Greek that considered would have to stay outside. And then, you know, the ladies could come in, the Jewish ladies that can come in a little bit further, but only the male Jews could come all the way in and worship God, this is the attitude of some of the people that Paul is writing to and what he has in mind. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine walking into uh, the place that we gather and there's a a sign posted that said, hey, you know, Latinos and African-Americans and and Asians, you can come all the way inside. And, and, And if you're a European descent, then you can come right up to the foyer, but don't come no closer than that. But you know what? If you're a lady or, or if you're a person who's Tongan or, or some other ethnicity, you've got to stay outside. And the truth is, is that you're better off out there than in here because this is what it actually said on that plaque. Any man of another ethnicity who opens these doors will have yourself to blame for us killing you. So there's a threat in the Jewish mind that if you are not ethnically or racially the way we've said it, if you don't look like, talk like, and are you know, from a family heritage or bloodline like mine, you don't belong here, and that's going to cost you your life. This is, this, this, this is striking, and I think it is a, a clarion call for the church in America to be thinking about something. You know, one of the things I want our church to be asking ourselves and even be in, in, engaging with people in our community is we're in Ventura and Camarillo and Ojai and Oxnard, other places. The truth of the matter is, is that as people, you know, maybe see our, our church or see some of our, our gospel communities and things like that, and they're asking, why is this multi-ethnic and, 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 and uh, this, this multicultural and transcultural? thing so much of a big deal to you I want us to be able to say and and ask the question hey if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not divided then why is the local the small church if the kingdom is united for all of eternity and if God died to to reconcile every tribe tongue and nation into one then why not us we want to see his will done in Ventura as it is in, in heaven I'm I'm pretty certain that Paul was thinking like this. We won't turn to it, but at another time, I want you to read Acts chapter 21 and just see how there was there was a, a some dissension that stirred up, and literally uh, Peter had to jump in the middle and just say, "I don't know why in the world it would be Acts chapter 15." Sorry, I don't know why in the world it would be that you guys would try to keep people away from each other. We all can only be saved by grace. 
It seems far-fetched to us sometimes, but I think that I'm, I'm preaching through this with the kind of passion that it is because, as you know, this is one of our core values, and I think this is very important for us to get right from the start, especially as we think about moving into areas and regions and sections of our city that are more densely populated and much more diverse than some of the more spread out ends and even, uh, you know, central portions. In the church, there's no better standing based on ethnicity. And so we've got to be excited about seeing all kinds of people from all kinds of places coming to Jesus and sitting on the front row and worshiping and singing and praising and preaching. We've got to be excited about that because that's what the kingdom is about. Colossians 3.11 is teaching us that our born-again family is way more important than any kind of birthrights we have naturally. But this leads us to our second set of neither nor from Paul. He's dealt with what we might classify again as racism or ethnocentrism. But if we get back into Colossians chapter 3 and we look at verse 11, after he said here there is neither Greek nor Jew, he goes on and he says circumcised and uncircumcised. And this focuses on religious traditionalism. It really grows out of the, the ethnocentrism that you saw. But this is, this is really focused on the fact that the Jews thought that the mark of belonging to God was that physical in your body circumcision, something that showed everybody that you're one of us religiously. Show that, you know, even after birth, uh, or, or this shows that even after the birth of the church, there was still a hurdle that needed to get over. And that's something that we've got to wrestle with and come to recognize. We still experience these things, even in the church. They were on the front lines of this argument. Like I said, in Acts chapter 15, I jumped ahead of myself. Here's what I will say, that um, the argument just came about and, and Acts 15 says it was no small disagreement. That's the way it's written. Verse number two. And it says that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others had got appointed to go up to the other apostles and say, like, we've got to solve this before we're even going to be able to get the gospel forward. This was this pressing issue that uh, people were being taught that you've got to be circumcised in your body. Even though we believe that, you know, Jesus Christ was the one, the son of God who sacrificed himself and it was the Messiah who came, you still got to do these things. Now, in Colossians chapter 2, we've already seen some of that. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions. He said, in him you were circumcised, speaking about Christ, with a circumcision that's made without hands. And so in, 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 uh, in the body of Christ, the reality is, is that we are circumcised spiritually, and that's the only thing that matters. It's not about the physical representation. When Paul was saying this, I mean, he was cutting straight to the core. He was, he was not leaving anything on the field. You guys will remember that in Galatians chapter 5, when we studied it, he calls this a yoke of slavery. You know, when you put two oxen together and, and you put that, that weight of the wood on their necks and you bind them together, I mean, they are literally in service to one another. He calls the law and circumcision a yoke of slavery. Paul doesn't see any freedom in us being told that we've got to come and to do and to be or, or do in order to be. 
He said, if you accept circumcision, Galatians 5 and verse 2, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He says, I'm telling you again, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law and you are severed from Christ. Now, does it make sense that when he comes to Colossians chapter three and he's been talking about putting off all these sins, interpersonal sins, like don't lie to each other. He also says there's no way in the world that you want to be sizing somebody up spiritually because of what they religiously have practiced or you practice. For in Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. Only faith working through love. That's how the Galatians passage ends. For them, it was circumcision. For us, I think it might be a host of other things. If we're honest, we can allow all sorts of traditions to cut in on the gospel. We start telling people they got to dress a certain way and they've got to talk a certain way, even got to believe a certain way on all kinds of secondary and third order issues. We start making feel, people feel as though, oh, you know, you, you, you have this gift or you don't have that gift. You believe in those gifts or you don't. You know this about that or you don't know. We, we do all kinds of things and it all falls oftentimes in the area of tradition. And what we're basically saying to folks is that in order to be in right standing with God, You've got to measure up to me or get beneath me. Paul has, I mean, he has zero tolerance for that. Christ cannot be added to. It's Christ plus something equals nothing. Remember, it's all about Jesus. If you seek to supplement Christ, you are in danger of supplanting Christ. If you try to put something right alongside Jesus Christ, the Messiah, you are going to miss Jesus Christ. You'd be like the thief on the cross who was within inches or within feet, just like uh, the, the other thief. And, and for whatever reason, one inches the, the kingdom of heaven that day, uh, based on what Jesus says. And, and the other is, I mean, it's just like right by him. What was it? It was that he was trying to mock the free gift of God's grace that comes through a low road that literally sacrifices itself for others and doesn't call people to try and add to the good news of what God has done for us in the atonement. Our traditions don't weigh in on a person's salvation, nor does it give us just ground to even believe that we have it. And it especially ought not to be that thing or a thing that divides the church. There's no division that ought to be uh, Tolerated, but especially not religious, traditional division and, like he's even said, ethnic divisions. After demolishing the vice versa of racism and religious traditionalism, Paul now widens the scope to include social and cultural walls of division. He calls on barbarians and Scythians. If you read that there, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncirc uh, uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. For most people living in the then known urban world, there were three categories of people. There were the Jews, there were the Greeks, and then there were the barbarians. To be a barbarian, I mean, it, it just is what it sounds like. They literally would say it's the people whose language sounds like bar, bar, bar. It, I mean, it was, it was totally cultural. Just you, you, you're unsophisticated, you are uncivilized, and you are out there on the outskirts of society. And, and like you just, I mean, again, as, a, as, as some of the people who considered themselves to be at the top with the most privileges and with the elite, they really looked down on this group. 
And then among that group, further, even further out north, there were the Scythians. And the Scythians were just like the, the, the deplorable, the absolute lowest of the low. And sometimes the barbarians and Scythians even had uh, beef against each other which is interesting if we think about usually when you consider society and you get to places where there are low folks on the totem pole, somehow all of a sudden, even our pain becomes something that divides us. It's like a way that we want to combat against each other and say, who's got the most pain or, or, or whatever, but it's nothing new. And so Paul takes it a step further and he just intensifies this and points out to say that there might be people from certain areas and certain backgrounds and certain lower statuses in society and in the body of Christ, they are not low, not one bit. They're actually on the exact same plane with, with everyone. Scythians were considered to be the most barbaric of the barbarians. They're they're, they're lowest of the low. I said that. They're a savage group, right? So the things that they would even do to humans sometimes is not, people say you you shouldn't even want to uh, mention those things, just very uh, cannibalistic. And Paul brings them into the picture as if to say, here in, in God's family, in the church, even the worst of the worst is joined together as a royal family member in Jesus Christ, inextricably tied together in him. And there's nothing that can separate them from the love of God, just like you. Is that our attitude about whoever we might be thinking about? I always say it. The guy on a, that sleeps under the bridge is not a bum, right? He's a man who's made in the image of God. Do we love him? Do we want to see him not just coming into the back of our church, but coming up into the front row? even serving in our church, leading our church? Do we have a framework like that? We ought to if we understand Colossians 3.11 and this call that Christ is all and in all. He didn't stop there. He went and talked about the slave and the free man. I'm going to just rush along here and I'll just say this. Here's another social barrier, right, that we can understand with CEOs and the person who is the, the, the hourly worker. When he says slave and free man, he wasn't only talking about what we have uh, as socioeconomically, but he's literally talking about the place, like the strata of, of, of the polar opposite strata, really, the person who owns it all and the individual who serves and, and oftentimes is not even paid for that. He literally says that there's nothing, nothing that should stand between them when it comes to our place in the body of Christ. In ancient times, slaves were viewed as these these living tools, not even as people, just just something to be used so that I can get to, to somewhere else. I recently have heard some things and I, I, I fundamentally disagree with some of the, the, the businesses and the ways that they're operating and keeping things open and the ways that they're trying to push an agenda. And, and really like these managers and general managers and owners, they're not out there in the public and they're not having to, uh, you know, break from a place where sheltering at home would be the safest thing. They're, they're, they're at home and making decisions and they're putting people in harm's way and they're doing it in a callous way. And, and I think it's the same kind of mindset that says that a slave, a lower class worker is not an individual to be considered. Not every time, but it's definitely sometimes. But in the church, we are not to be using people for personal gain, right? Not necessarily are we to be regarding image bearers, or not ever should we be regarding image bearers as, as, as just things or tools. We see 
brothers and sisters in the faith. There was at least one wealthy man in Colossae who would totally understand this. And and, and when he got this letter from Paul, he knew what Paul was hinting at. At the end of this letter, Paul says that he was sending his faithful brother to the Colossians. uh, Colossians, And and he he says uh, his name was Philemon or Onesimus was uh, who he was sending. At one time, Philemon had a slave who had run away. And Onesimus, Paul had uh, this letter hand-delivered back to him because he had run into Paul. And Paul had discipled him and sent him back and said, you need to reconcile there. So, so there's this really rich guy who has a slave who knows exactly what's saying. When Paul says, here, there's no slave and there's no free. You guys are both on the same, same plane. Perhaps there's no place in your life where you would see the, the man-made barriers of separation, right, uh, that, that are, are literal slave and free. But how about we just think about prominence and obscurity in the church? How about we just think about, like, the, the, the person who seems to have the high-standing place uh, or the individual who is just known and, and, and he's, uh, maybe he's a little bit more well-off. He might even be an individual who you would assume maybe he gives more to the church than the guy who walks in and he's clearly he just came in off the street. Uh, do, do you see a different status and a different closeness to God in those individuals? Do you save the sacred seat in the house? Do you think that way, that we want to actually make room for each and every person at a level, uh, level uh, set? But, but the reality is it'd be good to even save our choice seats and our choice place and a choice coffee and a choice donuts and, and, and all the choice things for the individual who's going to leave out of here. And that might be the only thing he had today. Prominence and, and obscurity, I think, literally begs this question, <laughs> Is, is there something in my mind that still exists as a wall that divides people from each other and from like really achieving the, the high status of quote unquote spirituality? Again, that's what the Colossians are up against in the kinds of heresy that come their way. We should see everybody as dearly loved brothers and sisters in Christ. As we've seen, there are some superficial things like the things that we have named already that um, others would want to try and use to divide us. And we should be asking a question now, Steve, didn't you say that there were two overarching realities that are going to guide our unity? I've only heard about disunity and division and dissension. Like, where are we going? I'll just land the plane for us there. These are pretty simple things. This is not something we have to tarry long on. For Paul, the two realities that define our unity are the preeminence of Christ, Jesus Christ is supreme, and the presence of Christ in all and for all. He said it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here is there not Jew, Greek, or Greek Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but. And this is a big but, right? He said, but Christ is all and he's in all. To say Christ is all takes us back to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, where he literally said he is the icon, the actual image of the invisible God. And he goes on and it says that everything has been created for him and by him and through him and all things are to him is the way he would even say it in the book of Romans. And he literally said he is preeminent. You remember that? 
The preeminence of Christ is that whole section from verse number 15 down to 22. But when he gets to verse number 18, he literally calls Jesus Christ the head of the body, the whole body. The body that includes the least, the last, and the, uh, and, and, and the ones who are otherwise left out. The body that includes the, the, the male, the female. The body that includes the barbarian and the Scythian, the slave and the free, the Jew and the Greek. I add in male and female because in Galatians chapter 3, he said the same thing to them. And he just added in and said, here, there's no uh, you know, male or female. And so what he goes on and literally says is that Jesus Christ in everything has first place. He's preeminent. He's supreme. That's what God's unity. That is what accomplishes reconciliation across every distinction and tears down every wall and every barrier. The supremacy and the high reaching preeminence and first place order of Jesus Christ and even the fact that he went to the cross to accomplish it. Paul has gone to length already to present Christ as supreme in all things when he said all the things he said in Colossians chapter 1. And literally now he's saying our unity begins and it ends on what we believe about who Christ is. Do you believe that Christ is all? Then it doesn't matter that the person next to you is totally different from you by their distinction and their background and their language and even maybe their religious upbringing. If you believe that Christ is all, that he believes that Christ is all, then here there's no distinction between you that ought to divide you does it make sense now that's the first thing that guides our unity when Jesus is supreme his purposes including unity are accomplished in us when Jesus is preeminent when Jesus is the one that we all look to then the foot of the the cross is level ground and we all bow beneath it and there's nobody who can now measure themselves up against the next person and say I'm better than her or I'm better than he is And when we get practical about this, we ought to remember that it's just like tuning in a symphony. I always talk about the the analogy of uh, of the, the, the symphony. Has it ever occurred to you that if you get 100 pianos all together and you are tuning for an orchestra, what you don't do is tune this piano to the piano next to it to the piano next to it and repeat that 99 times? It'll be the worst sound you've ever heard in your life. No, what they do is they take one tuning fork and bring every single piano, the grand piano, the electric piano, and all the other uprights, and you guys know instruments better than I do. They bring them all together, and they tune them to one fork, and you have harmony. That's what this is about. You have beautiful harmony because they are all reconciled to the same thing. We are all reconciled to Christ. Christ is all. And then that leads us to understanding that if this defines and it accomplishes our unity, right? The gospel reconciled worshipers from every tribe and every background, every culture and every class to one another. We get that for Revelation chapter 5. Verses 9 and 10, it says, they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation and people and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. 
When we come to that and we see that the gospel has reconciled us there and we have now been brought to a place where because of the preeminence and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we are one, then now we can see that there's also something that happens not just for us or before us, but in us. If you look back at the text, or maybe you know it by heart now, Christ is all and he's in all. He just takes it to the next step. Yes, he's supreme, but he's also sufficiently indwelling each and every person from all of those distinctions. It's the preeminence of Christ at one end, but now we talk about the presence of Christ in all. When Paul says in Colossians 3.11 that this is, uh, you know, all, he's picturing the, the new Jerusalem. He's picturing that Revelation passage we just read or even Revelation 7.9 where John saw a, a number of people he could not even put a number to. He said it was just a great multitude and they were from everybody. It was just from every tribe and, and all over the whole face of the earth. When he sees that, Paul is thinking about that multi-ethnic, multi-generational, transcultural church. And he's saying, if you're not about that, I don't know that you belong to Jesus. There's no way in the world. Or if you're, if you're, if you're somehow go crashing against that, you still look like the world. You're still putting on your old self. This is the new self. You're part of a new humanity. I keep calling it a new humanity because that Ephesians passage that I read a minute ago, Literally, when it says that he has reconciled us both to God through the cross and killed the hostility, he says he made us one new man. He brought us to a place of oneness. We know that this is our final reality. When you see the kingdom of God, when you see the church, whether you see it in your, like, your, 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 your home uh, because of the, the, the blended family that you have, the, the interracial marriage that you have, or the transracial adoption that you have, or, or even just the, the, the people that, are attract, uh, that have been uh, brought into your family and your extended family. When you see that, you should think and desire more and more and more of an expression of that to go forward because what it does is it witnesses to the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ before a lost and a dying world. When I said people want to see authentic Christians and people want to see real Christians, the reality is that Jesus has already told us we've gone through this 10 times, John 13 and 35 and John 17 and just around verses 20. I mean, literally, we know that what he is saying to us is that people are going to recognize that we belong to him because we're united, not because of the affinities and not because we look like one another. It's about oneness and it's not about sameness. This is our final reality, but what would it look like for us if we could take that Revelation passage and, 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 and even in some way be a snapshot of heaven? This is our prayer. This is our desire. This is what we ought to be seeking after. This is what we want. It is very critical that in days like this, Christians visualize the true body of Christ and see the importance of recognizing that Christ is all and he's in all and just want to see more of the all, more of the all, more of the all added. If the ultimate people of God as portrayed in Revelation are a multi-ethnic fulfillment of God's original intention, then the church today needs to look that very same way. 
At least that needs to be what our ideal is and what we labor toward. I'm going to close us here just in a word of prayer. It doesn't go without saying that the problem with race in America and class in America and culture in America is that people just haven't been willing to address the sin problems uh, that really relate to things like our skin problem. They haven't wanted to get beneath the surface. You just kind of want to brush it under the rug. But I think that God is calling us to really take this to heart. And I want him to, to bring us to a place where we are absolutely convicted about it. And we would say that the division in our nation has no place in our church. The division that we see in other places outside of the body of Christ, when we're gathered or scattered in our homes, in our hoods, we do never want to see that be something that is characterized by us. But instead, we want to rival and we want to push back on that darkness and showcase a unity that has a culture that submits to Jesus Christ and loves him by loving one another. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just using this time, using your word. Again, these verses, God, have been so, so, so monumental in shaping my life and ministry. And I find myself today here preaching until I'm sweating to... Um, to try and bring to bear, God, the, the, the passion that, that you carry for your multi-ethnic bride. But the truth of the matter is, is I know that still falls short. You slayed your son, your only begotten son. The cross literally had as its purpose to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, which meant that you had to kill Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. And you are that passionate about your glory and a passionate about your people. It only takes one moment for us to come to recognition of your reign and your rule and to see that the kingdom is literally in the midst of us and it's at hand and we can reach out and grab and we can embody these things even if as we look to the final reality. I pray, God, that you would make us a radically diverse group of world changers who together embrace one another in community in ways that make people say what in the world is this. I've never seen anything like it. God, I thank you that you're already doing this. And I pray that you would just push us to excel still more and we will give you all the glory, God. And um, we'll continue, Lord, to even walk in a manner that is worthy with the gospel, worthy of the gospel that we believe and put to death, yes, our, uh, our own sin, our own personal sin, but put to death, enter personal sins that divide us and attitude and inaction. By your spirit, we'll do this and we ask for your grace. Amen.